Hello everyone, this is Marie Lipman in our Pono's Eurasia podcast featuring a series of discussions about Russia and Eurasia, about the region's politics, and about other Russia and Eurasia related topics. Our topic today is Ukraine. I will discuss it with two experts who I will introduce a bit later. One year ago, Vladimir Zelensky, a political novice, won the presidential election by a landslide unprecedented in post-Soviet Ukraine. What made Zelensky's victory even more amazing was that up until his election, he had been a comedian, starring in a TV series as a person who became his country's president almost by accident. And there he was, a real president, supported by 73% of Ukrainians. Zelensky's 73% against the 24% gained by the incumbent President Petro Poroshenko was an astounding result in a country habitually divided, even polarized. The highest vote share ever won by a contender in Ukrainian presidential election was 56%. Equally unprecedented was the outcome of the parliamentary election that followed Zelensky's victory. For the first time in Ukraine's post-Soviet history, a single party gained control of the majority of seats in the Rada. Members of Zelensky's hastily assembled political party were easily defeating their competitors just because they were Zelensky's people. Ukraine's multicolor electoral map was no longer fractured among various political parties. Instead, it suddenly became almost monochrome, with most of Ukrainian territory painted in Zelensky's color. Zelensky is Ukraine's sixth president since it gained independence in 1991. During those three decades, Ukraine has been the scene of political crises, early elections, mass political protests, and two popular uprisings commonly referred to as the Orange Revolution and the Euromaidan. Each new abrupt political turn was followed by a disillusionment. Out of five Zelensky's predecessors, four failed to win a re-election for a second term. Greedy elites and pervasive corruption have been Ukraine's chronic problems. Apparently, many Ukrainian voters laid their expectations on Zelensky for the mere fact that he did not belong to the political establishment. His lack of political background and even his inexperienced team of friends and members of his stage crew were seen as an asset reinforced, of course, by his professional skills of a comedian, his informal style and personal charm. The newly elected president promised to stamp out corruption and loosing the grip of oligarchs on Ukraine. By the time of the parliamentary vote in July last year, about three months after Zelensky's election, more Ukrainians thought the country was on the right track than those who thought it was moving in the wrong direction, a mindset that had not been registered in at least a decade. Political analysts, however, were not deluded by Zelensky's easy victory. What lay ahead of him was a host of insurmountable tasks, and the new president and his team were hardly prepared to rise to the challenge. On top of fighting corruption and reducing the oligarch's clout, Zelensky's paramount task was to achieve a breakthrough in the long-running multilateral talks with Russia and the West over the conflict in Donbass and reintegrate this territory into Ukraine. Meanwhile, Zelensky's opponents, that he so easily defeated, did not disappear and were surely waiting for an opportunity to take political revenge. This year, Ukraine, like other countries of the world, was hit by the COVID-19 pandemic, 
calling for urgent and costly decisions and further aggravating Zelensky's predicament. Let me now introduce my guests. Sergei Kudela is a political analyst at Baylor University in Texas. He has published a book and many articles about Ukraine with a focus on the conflict in Donbass. Hello, Sergei. Hello, Maria. How are you? Good. Thank you for joining us. Georgi Kasyanov is head of the Department of Contemporary History and Politics at the Institute of History of Ukraine in Kiev. His main academic interest is modern and contemporary history of Ukraine and Central Eastern Europe. Hello, Georgi. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Let me start with a question about the COVID situation in Ukraine. A recent Associated Press reportage from Chernovtsi, a city close to Romanian border, with a video and many photos, showed a disastrous picture of a dilapidated hospital, overwhelmed doctors, and outdated equipment. Georgi, does it reflect the situation with the coronavirus in Ukraine as a whole? And what's it like in Kyiv? As far as I understand, you're not there right now, but not too far. Generally, well, the pictures from Chernivtsi is a picture from Chernivtsi, and the Chernivtsi is the region which just got the first blow from the coronavirus, and they have probably they are in the first place after or together with Kiev on the number of those who were infected, and the situation there does not reflect the situation in the whole Ukraine. In Kiev, well, some restrictions were lifted, but now we have talks about the renewal of restrictions because the number of those who are infected is growing there. But generally, if you go to streets, you see a number of people without masks. You see open terraces of restaurants opened and people sitting there. And it is now much more relaxed than even a week ago. So the only problem is that we still do not have real statistics about the number of infected, number of ill, but we have a number of dead and we have figures. But I have a sense that this statistics is incomplete and nobody knows the real scale of disease here in Ukraine. Okay. Sergei, what about the economic fallout of the pandemic in Ukraine? What can you say so far? Of course, it's too early to say, but still, the, the pandemic has been around for a while, so maybe you have an idea. Well, the most immediate effect, of course, is the negative, very bleak outlook on this coming year for the economy. The economic growth over the last four years came to an abrupt halt this quarter. There is a risk of a new recession coming up. Of course, Ukraine's economy has experienced a slowdown already last year before COVID-19 began. But Zelensky, he promised to make 2020 a year of major economic breakthrough. He promised to attract massive new investments in the Ukrainian economy. There were projections of uh, half a billion dollars of new investments from the sale of state assets this year. All of this, of course, now sounds like a big pipe dream. The economy is expected to shrink by various estimates from uh, 5 to 7 percent. Businesses are closing, unemployment is rising, capital is fleeing Ukraine, and the recent estimates put revenue from privatization at about 10% of the projected sum. So it's going to be a very tough year for many Ukrainians economically. The second, not as a direct effect, is of course the growing 
influence of the oligarchs. Their new government, uh, in the new government, many ministers are connected to various oligarchy groups. And as the COVID pandemic took over Ukraine, Zelensky in April asked major businessmen to manage the entire regions, to help the government out, because the government did not have the sufficient capacity to deal with the threat of the pandemic. So that promised fight against the oligarchs that he expressed at the beginning of his tenure is no more. And and the third effect is the greater leverage that the International Monetary Fund now has over Ukraine because IMF became the main source of external funding and Ukraine is in desperate need of money. It has a growing current account deficit. There have been risks of default this year. So it needs a new loan, and there has been talks about the possible $5 billion loan that's going to come up in the coming weeks. And of course, that means that many of the IMF demands would now have to be implemented. Many of them require further cuts, for example, in social spending or rising utility prices or the prices for government services. And all of these measures are, of course, extremely unpopular, and they may only exacerbate the hardships for an average Ukrainian. Right. You were among those who very early on, right after Zelensky's election, right after uh, the triumphant parliamentary election, triumphant for his party, of course, who sounded cautionary, very cautionary about unrealistic expectations. So looking back, and if we now look at before the pandemic struck, would you say your concerns were justified? Of course, they were justified. Uh, There was very little reason to expect that Zelensky could deliver on very ambitious promises that he made during the campaign to end the war, to fight corruption, to end poverty. Of course, he claimed that he already achieved some of these goals. For example, he claimed a couple of months ago that corruption is no more in Ukraine. It's over. It's the thing of the past. Of course, it's not true. Zelensky, when he came into office, he had no detailed policy program. He had no coherent team, very limited understanding of how the government works. But I think in some respects, he underperformed even given the low expectations. And the recent polls, for example, showed that Ukrainians give Zelensky a failing grade on some of the key policy areas that they expected to see progress on. Uh, And there are a couple of reasons for this failure, and very briefly, I will talk each of them. Uh, So the first reason, I think, is Zelensky's personal complacency, his reluctance to learn and go deeper into the nuts and bolts of the government policies. To some extent, this has been the curse for many Ukrainian presidents, but for Zelensky, it was a particularly acute problem because his close circle consists primarily of people with entertainment background, people who are used at producing flashy entertainment products. And as a result, we've seen in the last year a lot of catchy one-liners from Zelensky, a lot of slick videos, but very little substantive change, a lot of confusing policy statements. So that's one problem. The second problem is that the nature of uh, Zelensky's views, which are very back Um, encouraged the continuity with Poroshenko's presidency. So in many realms, in many policy domains, there has been very significant continuity. Remember that one reason why Zelensky managed to create this very diverse coalition that brought him this impressive victory last year was because he positioned himself as anti-Poroshenko. And to some extent, he still exploits this image. This is one of the reasons why his popularity remains relatively high. But there has been no substantive pushback on Poroshenko's policy. And if you compare it, for example, to President Trump, he also campaigned as anti-Obama when he was running against Hillary Clinton. In the first year when he came into office, he reversed many of Obama's policies, healthcare reform, Iran nuclear deal. But Zelensky, who had a majority in the parliament, even the most controversial policies of Poroshenko were not reversed. 
And finally, we've seen a very alarming personalization of politics in Ukraine with Zelensky at the helm. And that personalization, of course, leads to deinstitutionalization, where institutions such as legislature and government, they no longer matter. And one symptom of this deinstitutionalization is complete chaos in government appointments and in personnel policies. We've seen that both prime minister and chief of Zelensky's presidential office were replaced just after several months on the job. Ministers are being reshuffled on a continuous basis. Some ministerial positions have not been filled for weeks or months. And of course, there is no, no reasonable explanation when these changes are made, when new people are brought in, why you replace one group of people with another. So I think if Ukrainians were looking, just like Americans in 2016, were looking for major disruption, I think they got more than they actually bargained for. Well, this is a very bleak picture. Georgi, do you generally agree with this analysis? Indeed, there was a reshuffling of Zelensky's team, apparently a very loyal one, about six months into his presidency. Why do you think that he did that? Well, I think that generally it's very accurate analysis of what happened and what was expected. I myself also was not very much enthusiastic about the prospects of a uh, newly elected president. The only expectation was that he would, as a, well, I even call this a uh, electoral revolution. So the major expectation was that it, there would be new faces at the top of political management and at the top of state management. And we did see new faces, but These faces just happen to be not very much attractive in terms of their ability to run, well, these enormous tasks which they faced. So, uh, yes, and that was really great problem of the team. There was no team uh, and people around Zelensky, yes, they, they are accustomed to, well, to produce shows and they still follow this habit to produce shows. And, well, I could recall a distinction between real politics and virtual politics. So we have a lot of virtual politics, but we have very few of real politics. So, of course, there are some external factors like uh, world crisis and coronavirus, which affected the uh, ability of the president and his team, I don't know what his team is, to react and to do what they planned. I would like to recall also the so-called printer methods of issuing laws. When turbo regime of producing laws, the first months of Zelensky presidency. So it was a well first uh, alarming signal about the quality of the people who came to power and who deal with very complicated issues. As to relationship with the uh, oligarchs, I would say that when people say oligarchs in plural, they first of all meant one oligarch, uh, Mr. Kolomoisky. And we see that there was some kind of decision recently about banking and uh, about the what would happen to the banks, which were, well, in this case, we know what bank, uh, that it is private bank. So something was done, something was not, and I have a sense, well, which might be supported by certain data, sociological data, which is also very controversial, by the way. So I have a sense that these people, starting with the first person at the top of this pyramid, I think really do not have clear vision of what should be done. They just react to challenges, which appear sometimes unexpectedly. 
And in fact, they do not have a program. And some of their moves, some of their decisions were absolutely, well, I would call them idiotic. It's not an analytical term, but they were. For instance, when they wanted to deal with the small, petty private entrepreneurs, it's a very controversial issue in Ukraine. And they just followed the pattern, which appeared to be a kind of most stable pattern of action for all Ukrainian governments. All Ukrainian governments coming to power started to do something with petty entrepreneurs and trying to press them trying somehow to do something which would uh, complicate their lives. And the government under Zelensky was not exclusion. They also did it. And of course, it, it was done in the end of 2019. The famous low number, I don't remember the, the number of low, just, it was just about small and petty entrepreneurs. Like, uh, <clears throat> looks like they do not have any problems with oligarchs, for instance. So what Sergei mentioned about the decision to distribute regions of Ukraine between oligarchs, it was really a comic decision. And as far as I understand, when I followed some governors in Ukraine, when they were asked, did you receive any kind of aid or assistance from these oligarchs? They said, no, we did not. So what was this decision for? It just, well, discredited Zelensky as a top manager. So generally, the situation is very uncertain. It is very certain only in one case. We understand that we are in a deep economical crisis, and this crisis also enhanced by, well, let's say, people at the top do not have competences which would allow them to well, at least to elaborate a short-term program and long-term program. And we we understand that we cannot expect anything from them in terms of responding to challenges, to those challenges which were envisaged before they started to be in power and those challenges which appeared unexpectedly. So in all respects, we are in a very complicated situation. And I, I, I would support the thesis about the following Poroshenko's line. It looks like uh, a bit antiquarian theory of uh, path dependency, but in this case, it looks like that, unfortunately. Yeah, this sounds like a very harsh assessment. Well, I cannot help myself. This is a question to both of you. Can you think of any achievements that Zelensky and his team can boast of since their election, since they came to power? At least something? Yeah, who will start? <laughs> I'll, I'll let Georgi talk about that. Well, what I, I would mention, first of all, of course, is that the renewal of Normandy format and at least, well, meeting with Mr. Putin and the first attempt to talk to him and to re-establish negotiations I also would mention, well, it might look like a minor thing, but the bridge, at this famous bridge at one of the regions of Donbass also can be considered as a real achievement. While exchange of prisoners, despite all these nuances of who were released, also might be called an achievement. So the rest, well, it looks like uh, Shakespeare play. The rest is the silence. Can you add anything to that? We will talk about Donbass in more detail in a minute. Well, very briefly, I would say that it's interesting that we're looking for possible achievements. We, we cannot find any. But in reality, many Ukrainians uh, still are quite supportive of Zelensky. 
after this year. His popularity remains at about 40% steady. And all of the polls are showing that if there is a second round, he again gets about 70-75% against all the current possible contenders. And in a way, and that's how he interpreted it during the press conference following his first year, he suggested that, well, this is a recognition that at least I did something right. If, if the majority of Ukrainians are still willing to support me as president, it means I've been doing something right. And I, I think in a way, his important change compared to Poroshenko is, again, maybe more stylistic or symbolic. And that's a sense that somehow the president can represent an average Ukrainian, that he is more capable of connecting to an average Ukrainian in a more direct way. He's capable of understanding what the society needs and feels. And of course, these people, as Georgi mentioned, they work with emotions. So these are people from the entertainment industry who know how to manipulate emotions very effectively. And in a way, I think they created, were capable of creating this image of the president who is part of the people, very much a populist kind of image that many other presidents, of course, around the world cultivated this point. Whether it's an, a long-term strategic achievement, of course, it's hardly so, but uh, at least it allows people to feel some connection to the government, some sense that they're being represented by the people in power. And that in itself, I think, is very important. Okay. Well, I'm glad to hear you could think at least of something. And his high rating, I think, is certainly an achievement. Well, let's now move to Donbass. Talking to The Guardian in March this year, Zelensky set himself a deadline in talking to two Guardian reporters, a deadline for resolving the Donbass conflict. And the deadline was the end of the year. However, Sergey, in your article, I think also published in March, you referred to the situation in Donbass as a new impasse. Can you please describe where the situation is now and why did you use this phrase, new impasse? Sure. So remember that during the presidential campaign, Zelensky talked about the ability to restart this process of talks with Russia because he was confident that he could somehow establish a personal connection to Putin and would be able to somehow change the uh, dynamics of that conflict in a more positive direction. And it's true that in the first months of his presidency, Zelensky made a series of conciliatory steps. He negotiated very successfully the release of Ukrainian prisoners. And he also, for example, accepted the so-called Steinmeier formula that Poroshenko long resisted. That Steinmeier formula, which is controversial in some circles in Ukraine, basically calls for the introduction of the temporary special status for Donbass on the day that the local election is held there. But all of these conciliatory steps were framed as capitulation by former Poroshenko supporters, by some nationalist parties in Ukraine. And in response, in the fall of last year, the nationalist opposition launched a protest mobilization on the streets of the Ukrainian capital, of other cities. And that mobilization was meant to show first that public is willing to resist his peaceful initiatives and that they have a certain idea about what the red lines are for Ukraine, certain non-negotiable positions that would prevent Zelensky from making any further concessions to Moscow. These red lines, for example, include having no direct talks with representatives of DNR, LNR, bypassing Russia, no autonomy to Donbass, no holding local elections without regaining control of the border. 
And these protests, it's important to know that they were led by some of the same people who were actively involved during Euromaidan. These protests were also accompanied by direct threats on Zelensky life. So in a way, it was a very intimidating tactic, and I think it worked, because already during the Normandy summit in Paris, Zelensky indicated that he was willing to abide by the red lines that were imposed on him by the so-called civil society. And so over the last couple of months, we've seen actually the hardening of Ukraine's negotiation demands, and that became very apparent, especially in the last several weeks. What Ukraine is asking now is for basically a unilateral surrender of DNR-LNR to Ukrainian authorities without granting any constitutional guarantees or for permanent autonomous status to these territories. This is, of course, an ideal outcome from the Kyiv standpoint, no question about that. But it's also utterly unrealistic because the power balance on the ground has remained the same since 2015. There is no expectation that the position of these territories is going to change. So what is Zelensky's game plan right now? I think, and that's, of course, speculation, but I think based on these latest developments, I think he recognizes that the settlement of the conflict will entail serious internal destabilization because Really, the settlement, the real settlement, uh, stable agreement will require the kind of compromises from him that would likely trigger popular protests against him that may threaten his power. And since Zelensky right now is in a much weaker position than he was a year ago, a number of corruption scandals, for example, targeted his close associates. His majority in the parliament started to crumble. Many of his former allies are now criticizing him severely. So I think at this point, he prefers to see the failure of the talks that he could then blame on Russia and the separatists. And the likely outcome of that failure, of course, is the complete breakdown of the Minsk process, uh, possible withdrawal of Ukraine from Minsk, and the implementation of the so-called Plan B. Plan B has been mentioned quite often in the last couple of months. The administration never explained what Plan B means. But I think in general, we understand Plan B as an attempt to freeze all diplomatic activity around Donbass until Moscow changes its negotiation position. So essentially, if that happens, it will be going full circle and returning to the very same status quo that emerged in the last years of the Poroshenko presidency. And that is what I would call an impasse. Okay. Well, can you please offer your view of the relations between Zelensky and Putin? When Zelensky was just elected, Poroshenko said that with Zelensky at the helm, Ukraine could be quickly returned to Russia's orbit. Apparently, this is not happening. Far from it. So could you please elaborate on that? Well, well there were some expectations before their meeting in Paris that something would happen there, some kind of energy would work, and so they would be able to communicate. And to a certain extent, it happened. You know, during electoral campaign, there was a photo in uh, Russian media, Putin sitting on the sofa and uh, watching very attentively the debates on the stadium between Poroshenko and Zelensky, which means that Putin was very much interested in this person and he knew that who will be the next president. So generally, well, in terms of, of boxing, I would say that it, it's like heavyweight boxer meets a beginner of the lightweight. So absolutely, these two very different people with very different experience. 
political experience and the different capacities. So I don't know. It's it is it is not easy to respond this <laughs> uh, well, this kind of inquiry. What would be between them? At least what I see now is that we have a kind of well the context. We there were plans that there will be a new meeting in April, then in May, and there's still no plans for that. And I don't know how it would develop uh, in the nearest months and even years. I would support the idea that the conflict, well, of course, the major question is the conflict on Donbass. And uh, in the broader sense, it's a question of relationship between Russia and Ukraine. And I don't see any prospects that Putin would change his mind about Ukraine and about Ukrainians as a part of a Russian realm. So Zelensky would be just pushed by the nature of things to defend the sovereignty of the country and of Ukraine. And how he would do this, I don't know, taking into account his political experience, well, the absence of political experience. So I also would say that probably Putin also would be a bit tired about the situation in Donbass and probably also would be interested to solve somehow this situation. I think that it was a grave mistake of Zelensky to say that he will do something by the end of the year. It was nice in terms of showman, but it was very unwise in terms of uh, politician. And I would like to comment about Plan B. I have a sense that if they speak about Plan B, Plan B is that when they will be asked what Plan B is to prepare Plan C. So taking into account the quality of people who are around Zelensky. But if your question is about personal two persons, so they are just incompatible. They are very different. They in fact, we live in different worlds, and I personally do not see any prospects of how they will come to any kind of mutual understanding. So I cannot, I, I, I speak along, but in fact, I don't know how to respond, how to answer this question in full. Okay. Well, speaking from Moscow, I think there is a very slim chance, to say the least, that Putin might get tired of Donbass problem. And uh, Russian foreign policy commentator Vladimir Frolov wrote recently that the only way for Zelensky to regulate the conflict is on Putin's terms. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a fair assessment. Now, Sergei, we don't have much time left, but we need to talk about Zelensky versus the West and versus the United States. So in late May, seven former U.S. ambassadors to Ukraine wrote a letter in which they expressed concern about the upcoming proceedings regarding alleged meddling of the then United States Vice President Joe Biden in the activity of the then Ukraine's prosecutor, Viktor Shokin. What the ambassadors wrote was, we are disheartened by efforts to inject Ukraine into America's domestic politics as the 2020 U.S. presidential election approaches. So can you say quickly, uh, if possible, about the relations between Zelensky and the West, especially the U.S.? Well, there are 
two main problems, I think, that Zelensky now faces in relations with the West. And to some extent, of course, these problems are not of his own making. The first problem is that the bilateral agenda that Ukraine has with major Western powers like Germany, like France, like the United States, is focused almost exclusively on security issues. The security issues dominate this agenda, particularly the conflict on Donbass and the discussion about ways in which Ukraine can help to deter Russian aggression. And that is a very kind of utilitarian approach to viewing Ukraine on the part of the West. Of course, Germany and France look at it from the standpoint of European security. And for them, their main priority is how to ensure that Europe itself remains secure from possible Russian invasion or Russian aggression. And they're also looking at it from the standpoint of somehow containing the possibility of conflict from spilling over into other parts of Ukraine, which would make it a much more difficult problem to solve. But I think they showed in the last months uh, and even years under Poroshenko increasing exasperation with Ukrainian position, with the false starts of the peace talks, with the false promises that were made by all parties in these negotiations. And that exasperation may lead to some kind of disillusionment with what Ukraine can offer to Europe. As far as the United States is concerned, here we have a very different utilitarian calculation on the part of Donald Trump. And that utilitarian calculation comes down to how Ukraine can help him win election this year. And we've seen, of course, last year, a lot of evidence of how Trump tried to gather some kind of information from Zelensky to damage Biden's presidential campaign. And the fact that over the last couple of months, there have been no high-level talks or conversations between Trump and Zelensky shows that once he understood that Ukraine is of little help in this regard, that Zelensky is of little help in this regard, this specific narrow regard, he lost interest. And remember, during the bilateral talks in September, the only time when he met Zelensky, he said that basically Donbass is not the problem for him to deal with, is the problem for Ukraine and Russia to resolve. And so all of this may incentivize, and this is what the American ambassadors are talking about, that may incentivize some within Zelensky administration to come up with some ideas about how they can be again useful for Donald Trump ahead of the election. And that, of course, if this is the game they will try to play, will be a very risky game because we really don't know who is going to win in this election. That's first problem. And the most important problem, of course, is that it will actually amount to a very serious intervention in the electoral process in the United States, something that Ukraine does not want to do. And the second issue, of course, a more general issue, is that Ukraine finds itself at a dead end ideologically as far as its foreign policy is concerned. Foreign policy of Ukraine has been evolving around this goal of European and NATO integration, and that has always been the foundation of Ukraine's foreign policy doctrine. But we've seen that the European Union is now going through the internal crisis. It's losing dynamism. It's losing popular appeal. And it's clear now that these goals of European and NATO integration is basically a utopia. And utopia can never be a basis for a viable foreign policy strategy. And I think both people in Kiev and in the West recognize that these goals are unlikely to be implemented anytime soon. So there is a great need for a more realistic foreign policy. And that need for realism, I think, is not really met by the current political elites in Kiev. 
Yeah, and my final question, given Ukraine's complicated political history of the past decades and given Zelensky's difficult predicament, do you think he has a chance to finish his first term without a political crisis? Georgi, maybe you could start? Well, we're already in political crisis, and this political crisis lasts from, I would say, from 2004-2005. So it is normal state of affairs in Ukraine to be in political crisis and to be in economical crisis. So nothing is new under the sun in this case. But I, I have a sense that, well, I'm historian, I cannot give a, any kind of prognosis, but I'm sure that sooner or later there will be a serious turmoil in Ukraine. And according to Ukrainian tradition, since we're still, well, in many respects, we're still an agrarian nation, any turmoil should happen in November after the harvest is in and we have more time for doing things. So November probably will be the time for a new turmoil. Okay. Sergei, what about you? What do you think? Well, I heard that some observers in Ukraine were suggesting that if the crisis happens, it will be difficult for Zelensky to flee like uh, it happened to Yanukovych because he will have no place really to flee. He cannot flee to Russia. He cannot flee to the United States. So in this respect, I think if the crisis happens, it will need to be settled on the terms that will be acceptable to all the sides. And in that sense, I'm a little bit more optimistic about the future of Zelensky's presence, at least the first term. Great line to end our conversation on. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Sergei. Thank you, Georgi. Sure. Thank you very much.